before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Welcome to October. We've got football in full swing, the start of basketball and hockey season, and of course, baseball playoffs. Ha <laughs> ha oh, it's wild card weekend. Let's go Padres. Bet Online has you covered for all of the action this October. You can sign up with our promo code believe that's B L E A V and get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, where the game starts. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Tuesday, October 4th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in, however and whenever it is that you may be listening. I'm taking the reins here today on a Tuesday I want to just come on here and talk about the San Diego Padres. They clinched a playoff spot for the second time in my memorable lifetime. It looks like they're going to play a three-game series against the Mets this week, and I want to nerd out about the Padres, and I want to get excited about that because it's October and baseball and my team's in the playoffs this year, so I can get overly excited this weekend and put put the NFL on the back burner because I can get super excited about 5-0 Kansas and my beloved San Diego Padres, and that's how I want to spend my weekend, and uh, we'll we'll probably do that later, but we're not going to talk about that today. I, I have said for a few days now that today was going to be the day where we did a deep dive into the Tua Tungavailoa situation, uh, which we're going to do here on our A Block, and then on our B Block, we're going to have a follow-up to a story that we recorded last year about the National Women's Soccer League and a sex abuse scandal, really just an abuse scandal in general that broke across the sport and threatened the league with dissolvement and open investigations. And a year later, uh, we have a follow-up on this story because I think it's very important to talk about it and, and I have a level of expertise when it comes to this. Not a great expertise. There'll be people much better than me and more qualified to talk about this stuff, but we'll talk about what's going on with the National Women's Soccer League coming up later because that's more important than me just nerding out about my beloved San Diego Padres and all the rah-rah shit with sports. But let's start off with Tua Tungavailoa. And it's not going to be the full-scale podcast that I thought it was going to be because we just don't have all the information yet when it comes to whether or not Tua was concussed or was not concussed in the Sunday game with the viral video that's been circulating the news this week with a lot of people becoming internet doctors and TV doctors um, talking about Tua's medical situation, him stumbling off the field and calling it a back injury and being cleared for a concussion. But we know, or at least we are learning, that concussion science isn't as exact as you pass the NFL's made-up protocols with, with medical involvement. 
it's just brain injuries and brain trauma is something that's not really well documented within the scientific community relative to like we know a lot about knee injuries we know a lot about uh physical ailments and we don't know as much about the brain or mental ailments because uh mental science of the brain and science of mental disorders and uh, just really mental health in general is about a hundred years behind the physical health because science has had a much larger head start when it comes to dealing with the physical ailments and the brain is more of a mystery although there is a lot of scientific data available uh, that that corroborates the fact that even if Tua passes the concussion protocols, he may still have a concussion, uh, such as I believe it was Mike Evans who was diagnosed with a concussion over the weekend, even though he went back in the game, made a catch, and then afterwards was diagnosed with a concussion. If it wasn't Mike Evans, I apologize. I, I can't remember which player it was right now, but this has kind of been the the science of we don't have all the information. We've been waiting for information predominantly when it comes to the NFL Players Association investigation with Tua, which if you're tuning into this podcast and you don't know the the details behind Tua's injury and the NFL following uh, course with that, you probably know that Tua Tungavailoa got a head injury for the Miami Dolphins, the quarterback who had started 3-0 and and had the second best passer rating in football. And we were talking about him getting contracts and all sorts of stuff. And Um, He suffered an injury against the Bills in which he wobbled off the field. The NFL uh, Players Association started an investigation into the concussion handling with Tua's injury because he was cleared to play almost immediately and we were all confused how that was possible when we saw the visible signs of a concussion. Uh, And then worst case scenario on Thursday, Tua gets picked up by a a defender for the Bengals who is 130 pounds heavier than Tua Tungavailoa, which, as Dan Lebitard described, would be the equivalent of a 130-pound gap. Obviously, it's not percentages correct, but it is weight correct. An adult picking up a toddler and throwing him or her on their head And that's the difference in weight discrepancy that we're talking about there. Obviously, percentages don't line up exactly correct, but that that visual was very much something that stuck in my head. And and for someone whose background comes from journalism, it's something that is very much appealing uh, as I start to think about what this kind of injury looks like. And so he's picked up, throws Tua on his head and neck. He has to go to the hospital. Uh, We mentioned Blake Jude was at the stadium when that happened, and and eventually we'll get to talk to Blake Jude. Our schedules just didn't line up over the weekend about what the atmosphere was like there. And so this put more pressure on the Players Association and that investigation that they had because everyone got scared when Tua's hands started seizing up because he had a concussion and, and basically the possibility of two concussions within five days. And... The NFL PA's investigation into the concussion handling has led to the uh, neurotrauma consultant, which after the concussion lawsuit in 2010 was appointed, he got fired, and or they got fired. I actually don't know if it was a man or a woman, but they got fired, and as a result, 
we felt like that was some, or I felt like that was some sort of conclusion, and therefore we could talk about the Tua Tungavailoa situation, but we don't have the conclusions that have been drawn from that report. And again, I don't know exactly how trustworthy the report is going to be. Obviously, I lean pro-labor and also acknowledge that science is the most important documenter here, and there's obviously so much at stake when it comes to the result now because of what happened to Tua on Thursday that there may be people getting their hands on the final report that will make it seem I because obviously there's incentives layered for the players association to exaggerate the injury to help refine concussion protocols which protect players there's incentive from the league if it's a jointly appointed statement to um you know kind of downplay the injury itself and uh, say the right things about head issues and and then they're also, it looks like, doing the crime and punishment thing of saying, well, this is one bad egg, and we're going to just fire the neurotrauma consultant who did bad, and therefore this solves our problem. When we know that the NFL has systemic issues when it comes to head trauma, player injuries, and concussions, and they've earned no benefit of the doubt in my entire lifetime. Concussions, head injuries, CTE has been a conversation my entire memorable football lifetime and I've been able to have conversations about this uh, in a meaningful intellectual manner since I guess I was in high school even though I don't have all the information and don't know enough about concussions to talk about such a situation and so this puts us in the situation today where we're gonna not do the speculation although there's one point that I don't know exactly how to dive into but I'm gonna do my best to put in all the qualifiers and nuance on the front end before talking about this one point that I'm tempted to just stay away from. We'll, we'll, we'll bring it back up at the end. I'm tempted to just stay away from the conversation altogether because it's less important than like the checks and balances of players and injuries. And, and we talked Monday and Tuesday last week about football culture and what that's done to bodies over the years. We talked with uh, play through pain culture and, and all the incentives for the players and the team to get the player back out there, regardless of long-term health or injury and, and how independent, truly independent doctors could help change the systemic culture in the NFL when it comes to injuries and, and such. And when it comes to the Tua Tungavailoa situation specifically, we don't have all the information available at our disposal. And because it's a head injury, it's not as cut and dry as hearing Justin Herbert has torn rib cartilage and it's usually an eight-week injury, but Justin Herbert's going to play through it and we're just going to forget about it as the weeks go along because we can't every week point out the fact that Justin Herbert has torn rib cartilage. At a certain point, that's just the player that Justin Herbert is. But when the Chargers miss the playoffs, we'll do the evaluation as if Justin Herbert were healthy. And that's part of the incentive structure for players to get back out there and, and earn contracts. And so this is the gross part of NFL culture mingling with head issues and science, which the NFL has been science deniers for a long time. They, they were... if. You know the original story of concussions in the NFL. The NFL denied for years that concussions, head injuries were causing, were as a direct relation of football, which was leading to mental health issues for players after their careers. Um, in San Diego, Junior Seau became the face of head injuries after he committed suicide at 43. Uh, you have Mike Webster, which was famously documented in the... Um, which it was famously documented in the movie Concussion with Will Smith, uh, Dave Dewerson with the Chicago Bears, and 
those cases end up being the early stages of not having the science and the NFL denying the science in order to avoid paying out money in um, treatment and medical care for players after their careers. It was a money-saving situation for the NFL, for former players. Ultimately, that the information gets out. Bennett Amalu, who's the subject of the concussion lawsuit or the concussion movie, uh, ends up trying to be discredited and discover CTE, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, ultimately, in the end of the day, the NFL settles on paying out a, a billion dollars in damages to players in a lawsuit. And then the NFL has race norming issues where because of racist stereotypes about black players' brains being worth less than white players' brains. There was discrimination within the lawsuit and how they distributed the money for years. And that's the that's the background of the concussion situation. And because it's so muddied and gray and we don't have all the science available to us and the information from the NFL and the NFL Players Association, it's incredibly difficult to do the analysis on exactly what Tua Tungavailoa's type of injury has. And I am not going to dissect and try to dive into this because it's not my level of expertise. And so I'm just going to acknowledge the fact that we've been putting this story back for five days, waiting for information to develop, waiting for it to come to, to, to light, because this is a really, really interesting story. This is something that has been covered to the best extent it can. We don't have all the information available at our disposal. We've been waiting for more information, and little by little, it's come along. Obviously, two has been ruled out for next week for the Dolphins. The player, the the consequence of this is that the neurotrauma consultant has been fired, and the NFL and NFL Players Association released this joint statement, which is, Quote, the joint NFL-NFLPA investigation into the application of concussion protocol involving Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa remains ongoing. Therefore, we have not made any conclusions about medical errors or protocol violations. The NFL and NFL Players Association agree that modifications to the concussion protocol are needed to enhance player safety. The NFLPA's Mackey White Health and Safety Committee and the NFL's Head, Neck, and Spine Committee have already begun conversations about the use of the term gross motor instability and we anticipate changes to the protocol being made in the coming days based on what has been learned thus far in the review process the nfl and nfl players association share a strong appreciation for the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultants who contribute their time and expertise to our game solely to advance player safety this program has made our game safer for athletes who play it over the past 12 seasons uh, that statement came out on saturday just just uh, for the basis of timelines. And this was the point at the very beginning that I wanted to talk about, and it's less interesting than the neuroscience aspect and the last 15 years of the NFL denying concussions and trying to put this behind them into a new era of the sport and injury culture, play through pain culture in football and, and how independent, truly independent doctors, not just paid for by the team and employed by the team, could actually change the culture. And it could be a significant step that data shows would change the culture, not just in football, but in all sports. Uh, I was th- I researched this a lot when writing the story about the Spurs dynasty, which is available with the links in the description to this episode, wherever you get podcasts. I read a lot about what independent doctors uh, mean uh, being employed by the the player themselves and the teams. Uh, obviously, not everyone can afford their own individual doctors working on NFL salaries because the NFL, I, I'm sorry, America as a whole just does medical care incorrectly. 
And all of those things, whether it be the neuroscience aspect, the Players Association and Neurotrauma Consultants aspect of it, play through pain culture, independent doctors and what the word independent truly means, all of that is more fascinating than this point, which was based on the statement that we just read from the NFL Players Association and the NFL. And again, I, I those other things are more interesting. This is just the one that I feel like diving into because it's also interesting. It's just one that also we can speculate without having all the information available, which is, is this all a reaction to the fact that this was on a publicly televised game? Are the NFL and NFLPA just doing damage control, similar to what happened with Miles Garrett and the helmet swing on Mason Rudolph in 2019? Is it because everyone, except me because I didn't watch the game, is it because it was on primetime Thursday night football and everyone saw Tua Tungavailoa, who is a more famous athlete than, say, Dane Jackson for the Buffalo Bills, who had his head and neck bent backwards in week two, or Ryan Shazier, who on Monday night football had his career ended with near paralysis. I mean, it was paralysis. It took him many, many months to be able to walk again. Are those injuries less significant because Tua Tungavailoa is the famous athlete? And is this a story because it was a nationally televised game and everyone saw in horror Tua Tungavailoa's hand seize up? And is that now the NFL and the Players Association doing damage control when it comes to a very bad public moment for the NFL in the exact same way that when Miles Garrett swung the helmet of Mason Rudolph and hit him on the head, possibly concussing him, that Miles Garrett got an indefinite suspension, which ultimately ended up being six games because it was the rest of the season, and Miles Garrett had to quote unquote rehabilitate his image by doing sit down interviews with Mina Kimes before the season and apologizing, and and people ultimately gave him the benefit of the doubt, which led me to believe that this was a lot of pearl clutching, combined with the fact that during the preseason this year, Aaron Donald took a helmet and swung it at Bengals players, and he got fined instead of suspended because it was a grainy practice video, and the NFL, as we know, governs their punishments and disciplinary action based on public relations. They're, they, they're made-up standards, and the NFL will make up the punishments based on what their value system dictates, not based on any code of conduct, ethics, or morals, although they're partially ethically and morally guided. They're just less ethically and morally guided than, say, the law, which is obviously a higher standard than a a corporation or 32 individual corporations combined into a megacorporation dictating their punishments based on what the public reaction is so that they can make more money because money is the first and foremost priority for corporations like the NFL in this point. The whole origins of the concussion lawsuits comes from trying to save money and not paying out damages to former players. Is this just about the public relations of watching Tua Tungavailoa, who is a quarterback and someone who is making the league a lot of money the first few weeks of the season by generating interest in the Miami Dolphins? 
on podcasts like this and the one that I do with Cordell Stewart, where we led with Tua Tungavailoa in week three, not about his head injury, but about his incredible performances and leading comebacks against the Bills and the Ravens. Is this damage control because it's Tua? Is this damage control because the head injury happened on prime time? Is this an issue that the NFL is just going to do short-term fix, short-term fix, and we're just going to go back to the way things were? Because if that's the case, we're just not that outraged over seeing what happened with Tua. And if we're not that outraged, there isn't an incentive structure other than the threat of possible lawsuit and financial damages for the NFL and the NFL Players Association to change the protocol, specifically the NFL. Players Association is generally looking out for its players and trying to get the NFL to pay for measures that will help improve player safety. So I do think the NFL Players Association, obviously I lean pro-labor in these situations, I have my biases. The Players Association is at least looking out in that respect. From the standpoint of us Is this just a public relations point? And again, this is less interesting than the other stuff, which we don't have all the information to talk about. Because to me, it feels like another situation of the famous person who gets hurt combined with the media attention that follows it because we saw on Sunday that it was already a topic of conversation because it looked like he had a concussion. And that perfect confluence of events is leading to a damage control situation where the NFL and NFL Players Association, again, according to the statement, agree that modifications to the cushion protocol are needed to enhance player safety. And the two committees have already begun conversations around gross motor instability. And that's more of a public relations type of move that will lead to like small changes, but not actually lead to some sort of big picture change when it comes, and it'll be something that just keeps getting kicked down the road when it comes to big picture change to the safety of NFL players and the safety of the NFL uh, uh, when it comes to head injuries, which is an oxymoron because football is not safe. These are modern gladiators and players, while the game is safer and they've made rule changes, it's still football. It's still ridiculous how crazy this sport is and how the injuries will just be something that we acknowledge as being part of the sport because it's enjoyable to watch modern gladiators play football. And the oxymoron of making football safer, small changes like that won't actually make significant long-term impact. And if they do, there will be more bodies and more heads that come as a cost of trying to figure it out because there isn't an incentive to actually invest in the science for the NFL, who, again, is management in this case. I know the Players Association is making joint statements here, but this is a case of both sides don't have the incentive to invest large amounts of resources, specifically management, into this case. And so are they doing damage control because it's the topic of conversation for the last five days, and in the absence of information, they have to do something to quell public opinion because of what it matters to the dollar figures. Hopefully I articulated that in a way that was clear and concise and also points out the fact that this is like the fifth most interesting thing when it comes to this issue. It's just the one that we have data points for to support in the past, whereas for the other four, it's going to take a lot more research and a lot more nuance to dive into. And I wanted to do it today. I just don't have the information available. I've, I've learned a little bit more trying to look up this issue and 
This is a topic that within 25 minutes or 15 minutes is going to be difficult without uh, perhaps possibly the results of the investigation for the Players Association and some people in the scientific community to, to take interest in this issue, get access to Tua Tungavailoa's medical issues or Dane Jackson's or Ryan Shazier's and, and actually do some concussion slash head neck injury analysis when it comes to this because otherwise all we have is two is not going to play the next week for the dolphins and they cut out the i hate using this phrase but they cut out the bad egg who was doing the neuroscience uh was doing the independent neuro evaluation for the dolphins and that's the fix is get rid of the bad guy and this is the same problem with systemic issues like police brutality let's get rid of the perpetrators and then the issues are solved when the issues are more underlying and systemic because you have a fuck ton of head injuries in football and again i hope that i articulated that the con the the basically nfl doing damage control because people are clutching their pearls over seeing Tua get hit in the head is like the fifth most interesting topic. I was, I was tempted to not bring it up altogether, but that's the that's the topic that I have when it comes to this case because we don't have all the information yet when it comes to neuroscience or to his case specifically or the findings of the NFL and NFL Players Association investigation. And now, in order to awkwardly transition into talking about abuse within women's soccer, I'm going to do the really, really cringy thing and play the Miami Dolphins fight song from T-Pain because I need a transition and I'm just going to play the cringy fight song because it's hopefully going to provide a little bit of a laugh. also make a secondary promise here to you guys that if you stick with me through this case and we we talk about women's soccer and and I we t- I know I've seen the podcast demographics this podcast leans overwhelmingly men if you stick with me through talking about this story with the National Women's Soccer League I will play the Tua song again at the end I know some of you are here to be genuinely interested in this case. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence or your care for women's soccer. I just want to put out that this is going to be talking about systemic issues and gender and sex orientation and just some really gross stuff following up on something we talked about a year ago. And at the end, we're going to play the Tua song. I'm sorry, the Dolphins fight song. We'll, We'll play it at the end. You can look forward to it. It'll it'll break the tension up a little bit. Okay? Okay. And again, this is not to insult your intelligence in any way. I just want to put that out there so that maybe a couple people stick around for this. 
So last year, I went back. It was it was a wired up episode. It was on October third. I was uh, just moved into my upstairs apartment in, in the downstairs apartment complex I used to live in. It was a Saturday night, and a story broke from the Athletic detailing the coach of the Portland Timbers who would ultimately be fired because of his name is Paul Riley and a, an athletic story was released about how he sexually harassed and coerced players on his National Women's Soccer League team and used his position of power with to do things such as asking teammates to kiss each other in exchange for getting them out of conditioning drills, drinking with players, sending lewd photos. Um, there, were, there was a case in which he had sex with one of his players in a situation where the person may have been pressured in order to have that relation. And it's all really gross and women's soccer has been dealing with this. I'm going to link the athletic story as well into this as well because um, we the, we read the full story and detailed the full story a year ago, which is obviously a long time ago now. And um, some of the stuff there, I, I was not as informed on these issues as I was back then, but I felt informed enough to just share this story as part of a Wired Up podcast. And so... He gets fired, and it leads to this full-scale investigation into the sport because this was the second time, and, and the sport at the time I think only had like 10 teams. This is the second time in which the, the U.S., the, the National Women's Soccer League has a situation like this. Um, there's an E60 piece that's a 90-minute story that's going to be released tomorrow and and I want to follow up on that at some point again I haven't watched it yet and I may not have the time to watch it but there is a a deep report that came out and there's going to be a 90 minute uh, documentary journalistic piece that talks about this as well which I'm going to watch at some point I don't know when but I would like to just point out that that's the case ESPN is doing a 90-minute um, piece about professional women's soccer and this uh, independent investigation that was released a year after the athletic report came out, literally a year to the day. Um, today is um, October 3rd when I'm recording this on Monday, and we released the Wired Up episode last year on October 3rd, and this is a follow-up to that case. Um, I'm going to read the, the first part of this uh, from Jeff Carlisle, who is a U.S. soccer correspondent for uh, ESPN. The independent investigation into player abuse in women's professional soccer found a long list of failures by National Women's Soccer League coaches and executives, as well as the United States Soccer Federation itself. Quote, Our investigation has revealed a league in which abuse and misconduct, verbal and emotional abuse, and sexual misconduct have had been systemic, spanning multiple teams, coaches, and victims. The report read, Abuse in the National Women's Soccer League is rooted in a deeper culture of women's soccer, beginning in youth leagues that normalize verbally abusive coaches and blurs boundaries between coaches and players. The summary report, a copy of which was obtained by ESPN, also details recommendations for the United States Soccer Federation to implement going forward. The investigation was conducted by former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates on behalf of the United States Soccer Federation. 
The report included a previously undisclosed revelation as to the manner of racing Louisville's firing of Christy Holt as manager back in August 2021. The report, this was the first case before the Portland Timbers coach got fired, just as a side note. Quote, the report details how Holly called a player identified as Aaron Simon in for a film session, stating he would touch her for every pass she made a mistake on. ESPN's policy is not to publicly identify victims of abuse, but Simon, through a spokesperson, agreed to be identified. Holly then proceeded to put his hands down her pants and up her shirt. Simon would try to, quote, tightly cross her legs and push him away, laughing to avoid angering him, stating that when her teammate picked her up to drive home, Simon broke down crying. Holly was later fired for cause, and the reason for his firing was not publicly disclosed. Quote, there are too many athletes who still suffer in silence because they're scared no one will help them or hear them, Simon said in a statement through a spokesperson. I know because that is how I felt. Through many difficult days, my faith alone sustained me and kept me going. I want to do everything in my power to ensure that no other player must experience what I did. This report allows our voices to finally be heard and is the first step towards achieving the respectful workplace we all deserve. It is my sincere hope that the pain we have all experienced and the change we have all brought about will be for the good of our league and the game we all deeply love. End quote. In a statement, United States Soccer Federation President Cindy Parlo Cohn said this investigation's findings are heartbreaking and deeply troubling. The abuse described as inexcusable has no place on any playing field in any training facility or workplace. As the national governing body for our sport, U.S. soccer is fully committed to doing everything in its power to ensure that all players at all levels have a safe and respectful place to learn, grow, and compete. The investigation was initiated following the athletic report and the Thorns firing of Paul Riley. The report stated, quote, Players described a pattern of sexually charged comments, unwanted sexual advances, and sexual touching and coercive sexual intercourse. Uh, as we mentioned, a lot of that was detailed in the athletic piece. The abuse by coaches wasn't always sexual in nature, the report found, with former Chicago Red Stars manager Rory Damas among those found to have verbally and emotionally abused players. Quote, we heard report after report of relentless, degrading tirades, manipulation that was all about power, not improving performance, and retaliation against those who attempted to come forward. Among the report's findings was that throughout the league's existence, teams, the NWSL, and the United States Soccer Federation failed to put in place basic measures for player safety. Report also detailed how abuse in the NWSL was systemic and that NWSL teams, the league, and the federation failed to adequately address reports and evidence of misconduct. Quote, teams, the league, and the federation not only repeatedly failed to respond appropriately when confronted with player reports and evidence of abuse, they also failed to institute basic measures to prevent and address it, even as some leaders privately acknowledged the need for workplace protections. As a result, abusive coaches moved from team to team, laundered by press releases think thanking them for their service and positive references for teams that minimized or even concealed misconduct. Those at the NWSL and United States Soccer Federation in a position to correct the record stayed silent, and no one at the teams, the league, or the federation demanded better of coaches. Because the teams, the NWSL, and the United States Soccer Federation failed to identify and inform others of coaches' misconduct, the abuse was allowed to continue. This was due in part to a culture of abuse, silence, and fear of retaliation due to lack of job security. 
there's more in this story, and I'm again going to link it over to this story if you want to read more about this case. The investigation ended up conducting over 200 interviews, 100 people who were either previously in the NWSL as players or uh, previously or currently players. Um, they, they call for transparency so abusive coaches can't move from team to team and accountability and there is so much here and the thing that I've learned in like genuinely diving into this case and thinking about women's sports and women just in general within workplaces is that this is a case that's going to take generations of actively putting in the work and women have been doing this for years and years especially in women's sport and they've worked to change the culture little by little it's just going to take more and more generations and specifically it's going to take the work of parents at the youth levels to change the culture around women's sport because there's this unique thing in women's sports where at the, at, and again, I'm not the person who's best to explain this. I've heard Kate Fagan, who who is a former college bas- women's college basketball player, and she's talked on Levitard show and with ESPN, and I've listened to Sarah Spain on ESPN talk about this stuff. There are much better people than I to talk about this. The basic conversation, especially in women's basketball and women's soccer and women's track, is that for sports that have a pathway to the professional level there is this belief within youth cultures that women need to be coached by men and there is a preference for men to coach women's sports at the youngest youth levels this is also the case in tennis as well is that they're without men coaching women therefore the women will not reach their fullest potential And this sounds like such an old-timey trope, and yet it's something that's persisted within the culture, not just because of old-gendered stereotypes about coaching and leadership, also about fears with sexuality. And this idea that if you put a women's team with a women's coach, there's this fear, usually among like God-fearing Christian, God-fearing Christians who use religion as a backdrop for homophobia and misogyny and and talking about how when you talk whenever someone gets in trouble they talk about being a person of faith whether it's Robert Sarver or Tom Brenneman you know that that kind of antiquated christian conservative mindset of if i put my daughter in women's sports coached by a woman that my daughter is all of a sudden more likely to be gay or is more likely to be queer or is more likely to have a sexuality change. And this antiquated notion of thinking that environment ends up pressuring... I mean, it does pressure in that way. There's a better way to phrase this, and I'm just not thinking of it correctly, and I don't want to misspeak beyond this because... Talking about sexuality as a choice is something that still exists and is based in a lot of ignorance. And so 
because of that, there's this antiquated notion that is pers- that has persisted in the earliest days of women's sports. Because remember, women's sports were illegal in America until the 1970s. In England, professional women's sports were illegal until the 1980s. So this is a brand new culture when it comes to women's sports. And this old antiquated fear of what's going to happen if you put women within the sporting realms. And I know it's been generations Especially in America, it's been generations since then, but this is this dips into issues of gender, and it dips into sexuality crises, and it's really gross, but, and again, I'm not the best person who should explain this, because I am a man, and I am a white man, and I don't have the same experiences with women's culture, I'm just working to be an ally and someone who's actively continuing this cause that, again, women have been fighting for for generations now, and be- and beginning at youth levels and extending up to professional levels, if that's the culture of, you know, it's, uh, in, men's pro- in major men's professional sports, 100% of the coaches are men, yet if you point to women's basketball, 60% of the coaches are men and 40% of the coaches are women, that's because of the culture that has persisted between men and women. And of course, you want to strive for some form of culture in which men can be with a group of women who are within relative, relatively speaking, the same age bracket, and there's not concerns for abuse of power. And yet, of course, we don't live in that space because when you have a man who controls the fate of these people, especially in women's soccer where there's only... 250 spots in the entire world. There are first-round picks that get cut from the National Women's Soccer League. Most first-round picks get cut from the WNBA just because there is no space for them. And so when the pressure is ratcheted up to those levels, and we're talking about so few spots and so little power for the players relative to the men in positions of power, if you don't put the right checks and balances in, these are, are situations that are ripe for abuse specifically verbal abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse, because you have men in positions of power dictating the lives of women. And this cl- this goes back to corporate culture of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, into the 2010s. The Me Too movement was supposed to be a, a change that would last across generations and now starts to feel like more of a moment as we talk about the Ime Udoka situation but don't have all the information and the way people have speculated around that and shaming the, trying to shame the woman and the press coverage around that, which puts a slap in the face to what the Me Too movement was is still supposed to represent and is supposed to represent actual accountability measures being put in place so that we don't just allow women within workspaces to be themselves and be protected and be safe, but also empower them to then become leaders themselves. You point to that and you look at women's sport, which is obviously this arena that, you know, I've, I know sport and so sport will end up reflecting society in this respect. And the culture of women's sport and women's soccer and women's basketball is just something that's going to take, from what I can tell, is something that's going to take generations. And putting women in positions of power to actually begin influencing it. But as long as the culture gets passed down through tribalism and you have women who come to the defense of men in positions of power and you have antagonism and you just also don't talk about this story, I feel like this is not a story that's going to lead any national news on a Monday after football or a Tuesday after football. If you just don't talk about it either and give it the coverage that it deserves, you're not going to change the culture on a grandiose level because most 
most parents in these positions don't actually know the deeper subculture of women's sport and why it is in the first place that this coach of a woman's sports team is a man and the best coaches are all men and because they hold this influence over women why there's an increased chance that women are going to be abused and harassed uh, verbally or emotionally or even in the worst cases sexually like we're talking about in these cases and their entire careers will be predicated on their willingness to give in to abuse and work through abusive relationships in order to try and make it as a professional athlete, which is an incredibly gross culture that, as this reporting is detailed and we've known about for years and years, is what persists within women's sports. And it's going to take generations to change, but it's going to require concerted effort from people in positions of power, and there just aren't enough women in these positions of power to actually make the kinds of change that will make it so that another generation doesn't have to deal with systemic abuse at all level at youth cultures and then we start getting into like what a an adult coach should have because you know we talk about with women's tennis how the biggest stars rise when they're 12 13 14 uh, Ashley Barty, who is the number one player in the world, gets burned out at 25 years old. Naomi Osaka at 21 years old is talking about wanting to walk away from the sport and mental health issues. And, you know, just the, the uh, Venus and Serena Williams have talked about this stuff too. And, and if you watch the, the King Richard documentary slash, it's not a documentary, the King Richard movie that was produced by Serena Williams and Venus Williams and famously was the movie that Will Smith won Best Actor for before he slapped Chris Rock in the face. If you watch that movie, it explains what youth culture looked like back in the 90s with women's tennis, and a lot of that is great. In it, Obviously, it's better to have the information on the front end, but that's a great way of informing what youth culture looks like in girls' sports. And actively seeking out the coaching of men for women's sport because of this old school idea that uh, you can influence your daughter's chances of being a great player by being coached by a man and you will be able to protect their sexuality so that they don't turn to the devil and actually and you know the, these dumb notions about sexuality and gender and it's just something that if you follow what youth culture looks like within women's sports that then persists into the college sports level because there just aren't enough. There's so many women competing for so few spots, which is the case in men's sports as well. In men's sports, there just is a power imbalance that leads to verbal abuse and leads to emotional abuse. And at the same time, the cultures haven't persisted across years and years to where we're talking about a, a double, a, a, an extra layer to this, which is sexual abuse of women by men which obviously there's sexual abuse of men of men as well we could talk about penn state we could talk about michigan state we could talk about michigan usc like colleges have allowed for um sex abuse to run rampant because there haven't been the accurate protections in place for male and female athletes in those respects at least there's some sort of checks and balances in men's sports because the added layer in it, in it again we're talking about heteronormative spaces is for men to be put in positions of power to then lead other men and so that creates a little bit of a balance because on another fucked up side note men's culture has also persisted with homophobia and so there's less of a 
situation where we're talking about sex abuse within locker rooms because homophobia is something that has run pervasive within men's sports culture. And so this idea of talking about men having sex with other men and gay men within football and basketball and men's sports being okay being out, which is something that doesn't exist right now in any sports. And there's no out baseball players. There's no out basketball players. And there is currently one out football player who also may or may not have had many, many millions of dollars in his career affected by the fact that he's not out. We could talk about how those cultures also, in a weird way, protect from sex abuse. And again, I'm not the best person to talk about this stuff. That I, I'm, in many of these cases, talking from an emotional standpoint and connecting dots in different places, and it's moving away from the main point, which is when we're talking about issues in women's sports that begin with youth culture. And again, soccer is going to be the way in a year later after the first time we talked about this. Like within women's sports, having having culture begin at the youth levels, extending to colleges where, again, there's lots of abuse uh, as well between the balances of power of college coaches and, and female athletes. Uh, we can then point on to the professional levels now where that culture has persisted. And as a result, the women who are athletes get failed at every turn and are continuously exposed to abusive cultures in order to be professional athletes. And if that comes as part of the expectation that you're going to be at a high risk of emotional abuse and verbal abuse and sexual abuse in order to compete within these highest level, or even not even the highest levels, even youth levels of professional sport, in order to reach the highest levels of your sport, if experiencing abuse and being in unsafe environments is going to be something that as they talked about in the report again i'll I'll quote for it like is uh, i'll directly quote it again um abuse and misconduct is systemic spanning multiple teams and coaches and victims extending from youth levels to college levels to professional levels if abuse verbal sexual and um emotional abuse and uh, uh sexual misconduct are going to be just mainstays of these systems that's a failure of leadership and a a failure to protect young people and a failure to protect women on all levels of sport and something that should be worked to correct so that generations beyond this don't experience the same trauma that these women go through within the ranks of youth sport and a year later after talking about this exact same story having the report come out and recognizing that it's going to take many generations to correct a lot of this behavior is something that feels like a daunting task. And obviously just talking on a podcast to 50 to 100 people is only going to do so much. I just want this to be something that seals, at least brings to focus the work that women are doing and will hopefully inspire those who are allies uh, to back the support as we change the systemic cultures within sport, hopefully across generations. It's a daunting task. It's a it's an infinite goal. If you feel that you are called to this cause, perhaps there's more that could be done uh, in order to work to change the culture around abuse and misconduct within women's sports, sports at large, but it's specifically a pressing issue when it comes to women's sports on youth levels, college levels, and as the reports detailed today, the professional levels of 
women's professional soccer. And again, these and this is going to be my closing thought here on this topic. I hate when the only times I talk about women's sports come into play when something bad has happened. Because women's sports deserve so much better and so much more attention. It's just that the sports are, are young. The National Women's Soccer League started like 15 years ago. The WNBA just celebrated their 25th year in existence. And these sports are in the early infancies of any corporation that's going to succeed in the long run. And you're going to have growing pains. You're going to have failures. Yes, you're going to adopt some level of corporate culture when you don't have the resources to back up and you don't invest in the well-being of your people that's where toxic cultures can persist and you have to kind of build things from the ground up. But when you build things from the ground up, you're going to make more mistakes and people are going to quit and people are going to turn over jobs and you're going to have cultures go, you know, one step forward, two steps back in order to move two more steps forward. And women's sports just deserve so much more than that. I, when, when this came out a year ago, I was so upset to learn that there's a women's soccer team in San Diego now. I lived in San Diego for my entire childhood. I, I left in 2019 to go to college, and now I, I live in Northern California. Not only is there a, a women's soccer team in San Diego, I could pay $10 and go watch Alex Morgan play with a team whose president is Jill Ellis, the former U.S. women's national team coach. And those are like the two names in the sport that transcend women's soccer. If you're talking about like, I mean, I guess you could also go to Megan Rapino, or you could go to um, Carly Lloyd perhaps. But other than that, those are the names that transcend the sport. Alex Morgan and Jill Ellis are the two names that transcend women's soccer, and they're both in San Diego. And obviously, I don't live there anymore, but the fact that they were there and I just didn't even know that that was the case until like a year ago, and the team's been in existence for two years now. Like the fact that that was the case and that you have this transcendent star in the sport was something that I looked at. And I was just like, God damn, like. That should be the thing I talk about when it comes to women's sports. If I'm going to have a, a foray into women's sport and actually talk about the sport itself, I want to talk about Alex Morgan. I want to talk about uh, the San Diego wave because that's a local connection to the sport. I try my best. I, I, not virtue signaling. I try to support women's sports through money because that's something that I think is more worthy than, say, giving the $300 to the NFL. It's why I have a Sabrina Ionescu jersey. It's why I regret, not regret buying that. Like, it's good that I paid the WNBA full price for that jersey, but I also should have supported a black woman because black women within sport is something that is a double, you know, we're talking about double jeopardy when it comes to um, being, you know, black and a woman. That's a double minority, double jeopardy situation. If you know stuff about sociology and social science, the term is double jeopardy. But you have a double jeopardy situation there. So now you're looking at financial, social class, uh, political and economic status. You're looking at that being a, a double jeopardy situation. So it's important to support black women within sport. And it's just something that I want to put my mouth, I want to put my money where my mouth is. My mouth is obviously talking here and I want to put my money behind that because 
talking about protection of women within a space and i'm learning more about this issue again i'm not the best person to talk about this stuff i'm just learning more about it and want to bring these cases to light so that i'm not part of the problem and i'm actively working to to undo misogynistic patterns within sport abuse of women where they can't reach positions of power and in order to even be part of the labor force you have to endure situations where you feel unsafe and you are exposed to abusive cultures and i just want to put money where my mouth is and just work as i get older and myself perhaps reach a position of power with privilege to possibly give opportunities to people in other positions and i just want to just talk about it here and then put my money where my mouth is as we go forward so one of these days i'll talk more about the san diego wave and alex morgan and and that sport itself instead of doing another football podcast but ladies and gentlemen thank you for stopping in here to the take it easy podcast uh we will have episodes every single week coming at you here Uh, i appreciate all of your time and continued support for this show um and in the meantime take it easy we'll talk to you again tomorrow I almost forgot you guys listen to me get emotional and talk about women's sport. I will play the Miami Dolphins T-Pain fight song.